Much of the internet is dark, unseen by search engines, and far more private. When you think back, the internet has changed so much already. It goes in these sort of waves every decade or so. It started off as a military project in the 70s and became an academic one in the 80s, became a tool for commerce in the 90s and then social media in the noughties. And it changes, it evolves, it always does and it will again. That's Jamie Bartlett, author of The Dark Net, Inside the Digital Underworld. He's a journalist and director of the Center for Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos. In this podcast from American Scientist magazine, Bartlett discusses concerns about surveillance, privacy, and security. I'm Diane Timblin. I think all the concerns about surveillance, the growing revelations of what companies hold on you and what government does, and the increased development from people of software that's more secure, the, you know, it all to me points towards a new wave where security is really important for people. I asked Jamie to read a section from his book that considers the tension between freedom of information and demands for privacy on the one hand versus security and law enforcement on the other. The issue has become a political preoccupation as the dark net provides a place for both legal and illegal actions, pursuits that range from buying merchandise with bitcoins to organizing terrorist activities. Here's Jamie Bartlett reading from his book, The Dark Net, in an interview I had with him earlier this year. So this is from my chapter about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and the culture of crypto anarchy, the idea that, you know, the vision and dream of crypto anarchists of using modern encryption software, it's actually been around for a while, 20, 30 years, to create these kind of libertarian paradises that actually preventing the government from monitoring us or raising taxes from us would in the end force government, well, essentially would mean that governments would collapse and we could live in wonderful libertarian paradise. <laughs> That's the kind of backdrop of the whole story because a lot of the modern encryption software is built by crypto-libertarian, libertarians and crypto-anarchists who are really quite radical political revolutionaries but whose software now is actually being used by everybody. And one of the ways that they're using that is actually in trying to share that is a sort of quite concerted and deliberate effort, particularly after Edward Snowden, to share the kind of easily available, freely available and easy to use pieces of software that can help you stay a little more secure online. And the chapter is called Intergalt's Gulch, which, of course, was Ayn Rand's <laughs> libertarian mm -hmm. paradise. <laughs> okay. Most people don't know how to browse the net anonymously using Tor, how to pay with Bitcoin, or how to send a message encrypted with the text encryption system PGP. A crypto party is a small workshop to show them how. It's typically 20 or so people being walked through the basics of online security by volunteer experts. They're free to attend and often held in someone's home, at a university, or even a pub. There is even a free crypto party handbook, which was crowdsourced in less than 24 hours by activists all over the world and continues to be publicly edited and updated. Shortly after the Edward Snowden revelations, a group of privacy activists held a very large crypto party on the campus of Goldsmiths University of London. And I joined around 200 people, all of whom wanted to learn how to stay anonymous online. 
in packed workshop sessions, each one hour long, we learned how to use Tor to browse anonymously, how to spend bitcoins, how to use Pretty Good Privacy, PGP. There was an interesting mix of participants. A group of older women were delighted at sending messages to each other using PGP, which is weirdly satisfying. And soon, we were exchanging missives. With only a click, a long paragraph of meaningless numbers and letters suddenly becomes, Hello. I met a journalist worried about his sources in a dangerous part of the world overseas, and a few students who seemed happy to have found a cause to rage against. One German woman told me that she was old enough to remember the Stasi, and is convinced that we are sleepwalking into some kind of Orwellian dystopia. Do you trust the police? She glared at me. Well, yes, most of the time, I replied. Well, you shouldn't, she snapped. I asked her if she'd ever heard of Tim May and the cypherpunks. She hadn't. In fact, no one had. But so what? Surveys consistently show that we value privacy. Nine out of ten Britons say they'd like more control over what happens to their personal data online. The balance societies endeavour to find between individual freedoms and state power is always in flux. Most of us accept that, even in democracies, we need to be spied on sometimes but that it should be limited, proportionate and not misused. And we try to pass laws to ensure that's the case, but modern technology has moved on so quickly, and with the advent of extremely powerful computing and the fact that we share so much publicly about ourselves, a lot of people, and not just the radical cypherpunks, think that their right to privacy is being breached. People like Phil Zimmerman, who invented pretty good privacy, are developing crypto cryptography, because they believe their work helps guard civil liberties from intrusive surveillance, especially in repressive regimes. And undoubtedly it does. But it's not only freedom fighters and democratic revolutionaries that use their tools. Terrorists, extremists, serious organised criminals and child pornographers denied mainstream channels are often early adopters of new technology and also have an incentive to stay secret and hidden. The major producers and distributors, although not viewers, of child pornography are expert users of cryptography. Without Bitcoin, the online drug market Silk Road would probably never have existed. David Omond, the former GCHQ director, that's the UK equivalent of the National Security Agency, is now a visiting professor at King's College London. He remains close to the intelligence agencies in the UK. It is absolutely vital that intelligence agencies retain the capability to monitor who they need in order to keep the public safe, he tells me. The internet gives a much wider range of options for avoiding surveillance. It is generally true that terrorists and serious criminals will and do use the latest technology available to them and they follow very closely the latest developments in secure communications. It's an arms race. Now it has been alleged, although never proven, that the 9-11 terrorists used pretty good privacy encryption in their communications. I have no idea whatsoever about that, says Omond, but he is convinced that terrorists would have been delighted by information about the Edward Snowden leaks. You can be sure they were following the story very closely indeed, as would have been the Russian and Chinese governments, he told me. 
The terrorist group Islamic State are known to keep close tabs on the latest developments in cryptography, using any software possible to evade monitoring. Now I asked Omand if he was worried about the rise in crypto parties or more widespread adoption of Tor, Mailpile, dark wallets and all the rest. Might it make us less safe? Yes, it does concern me, but you won't stop the intelligence machine. He thinks intelligence officers will find a way around it. They have to, but it might end up being more intrusive than using the alleged methods exposed by Edward Snowden. He recounts that during the Cold War, Soviet ciphers were too strong for GCHQ to break. So British intelligence switched to recruiting more Soviet agents. If the state considers you to be a legitimate target for security investigation but can't track your online activity using an anonymous browser, they will put a bug in your bedroom instead. And he predicts more agents and intrusive operations in future. Typically, he says, they are more morally hazardous. Now for the cypherpunks, the fact that criminals use encryption is an unfortunate outcome, but a cost worth paying for the extra freedom it provides. Phil Zimmerman has been repeatedly asked how he feels that the 9-11 hijackers might have used the software he designed. It was, he says, far outweighed by the fact PGP is a tool for human rights around the world. Strong cryptography does more good for a democratic society than harm. Zimmerman or Tim May don't have responsibility for keeping the public safe, and they don't read top-secret security briefings. David Omond did. Not that he blames Phil Zimmerman. It's not a moral consideration for him to weigh up, he says. Of course, he should have developed PGP. We would not have the benefits of the internet without such breakthroughs. But it's for elected democratic governments to decide whether new technologies also pose dangers for the public and what, if anything, needs to be done to keep those risks to acceptable levels. Well, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? It sums it up the two sides of all the things we're discussing about cryptography, privacy and anonymity. And I always think that no matter, every time you hear the government banging on about we need to stop the terrorists or you hear the, the civil liberties group saying, oh, everyone's spying on us, I never, it's never that simple. That was Jamie Bartlett, reading from his book, The Dark Net, from an interview I had with him for our book section, The Scientist Nightstand. For more on the intersection between science and culture, including The Dark Net, visit our website, americanscientist.org slash blogs slash science culture. I'm Diane Timblin. On behalf of American Scientist Magazine and our publisher, Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society, thanks for joining us. Happy reading. <laughs>